All right, we're up to First uh, Kings chapter 17. Lord willing, we'll be getting into that passage today. We stopped a little short of that last time. We were in First Kings 16, so we'll back up a little bit, but we'll be heading towards that next chapter, Lord willing. I was listening to a pastor this week, a Calvary Chapel guy, I'll put the blame on that. Uh, he said that, you know, a lot of, he was talking to his congregation and he said, uh, you all just don't know what it's like to wake up on Sunday morning and you can't hit the snooze because you're the pastor. You have to be there. So he said, but I know the Lord will forgive you who do because he's a very gracious God, very forgiving. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> You have those mornings. <laughs> Last time we started this section where the Lord was letting us look at some of the kings who were in the northern kingdom of Israel. And remember, they did have a lot of kings that ruled in that northern kingdom, but every single one of them was evil. They didn't have one good king out of the whole bunch. So let's jump back into First uh, Kings chapter 16 to pick up where we were. And I uh, just want to pick up probably around verse 23. We'll read a little bit, and then we'll get back to where we stopped. We kind of stopped at a strange point last time. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 23. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, Omri became king over Israel, and that's talking about the northern kingdom, and he reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terza, and he, he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. Then he built on the hill, and he called the name of the city which he built, Samaria, after the name of Shemer, owner of the hill. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and did worse than all who were before him. And then it's going to explain to us why it was worse. Verse 26. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin, by which he had made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. So some say that the way this is written, Omni not only led the people into idolatry, but he forced them into it. They said that he made laws to require them to worship the idols. And you know, when the devil has his way, he will work things into the legal system. I don't know if you've heard this, but in June of this year, which was just less than a month ago, they passed a law in California that does not allow a pastor or a counselor to say anything negative or immoral about homosexuality. It's already been passed. And now, right now, they have another law they're trying to pass in California that would prohibit the sale of books that say anything negative or immoral about homosexuality. Now, the politician who's, who's behind this law said, oh, we're not talking about Bibles, you know, but how can you believe a politician, right? So these are, as one pastor called them, these are devilish laws, you know, the devil's behind these. And the reason I think it is is because he does not want uh, these people to change. He doesn't want them to know there's freedom to get out of that sin of homosexuality, he wants them to die in their sin, and that's, that's something he's, he's shooting for. So we need to pray for the pastors and uh, Christian leaders in California. They've got a hard decision to make here. They're going to have to stand for the Lord, and it will be standing against the law of this country. 
And uh, the pastor I heard talking about this, he said, I'm, I'm speaking to the other pastors in the country. He said, uh, what happens in California doesn't stay in California. It's going to spread to the rest of the country. So just know these are coming your way as well. Yeah, so the devil's still pulling his stunts here. And for us, this a, it's an encouragement. We know it's the end times. Uh, it's a sign for us that the enemies get, the world's getting ready to open their arms to the devil, and they think it's going to be wonderful, and it's going to be the worst thing that ever happened to them, and they'll find that out way too late. But for us as believers, you know, it's an encouragement to look up that the Lord is, is coming is close here. Uh, verse 27, it goes on. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. Then Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. And some have said that the worst thing that Omri did, although he did so much wickedness in Israel, the very worst thing he did was bring Ahab into this world. Because Ahab, he's going to take Israel to brand new depths of evil and darkness. And again, just when you think it couldn't get any worse, it does. Because uh, the devil's trying to pull every stunt he can. So verse 29 goes on, Then the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, remember that's the southern kingdom, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. That's the northern kingdom. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. So the Lord lets us see here that King Asa, he's in Judah, he's in the southern kingdom, and he's just cruising along. He's got the people there worshiping the true God of Israel, and things are going well for them. And the Lord just mentions that in the background, kind of, letting you know that Asa's still the king, and he's still leading the people in righteousness. So back in the northern kingdom now, as he's talking about Ahab again, uh, we find that Abraham, uh, Ahab I'm sorry, had a pretty long time to reign, 22 years we're told, which meant that he also had a long time to repent as well, but he never did, never repented, okay? Verse 30 goes on, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. What a statement, more than all who were before him. So can you imagine, they already took a step down into more evil with his daddy, Omri, where he started making laws, forcing them you know, to worship idols and everything. And now Ahab is taking them down further and further. You know, but we need to, to realize that when you are in this downward spiral of sin like this, that sooner or later you're going to reach a tipping point where God's judgment is going to explode. He's not going to let it keep going on and on. That day was coming for the northern kingdom in a couple hundred years. God was going to be gracious and give them time to repent, and they never are going to, but God gave them the chance. He gave them time. And we need to realize, you know, the day is going to come for our nation as well. God's only going to tolerate sin for so long. And we learned earlier in the Old Testament, remember, that as the Lord was speaking even to Moses, and he let him know that there's a, a time where a land is going to get its quota of sin filled up. And when that happens, the Lord brings judgment. And that's what happened to the Amorites in the Promised Land. The Lord said their, their judgment is full. So now the Lord sent his people, after their sins have been filled to the top, uh, the Lord sent his people in and he said, just wipe these folks out. 
and they were intentionally supposed to be a judgment against the Amorites, the Canaanites in the land, and to wipe them off because they had committed so much sin there wasn't, wasn't any more room for any more sin you know, in their land. Unbelievable uh, man could do that. So back in verse 31, it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, as if that wasn't enough to cause a stir, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal, or Baal, as they called him too, and worshipped him. So because of the woman he married, Ahab institutes a major change in the northern kingdom. King Jared, you remember the, the first guy who was king of the north there, he was going to have people still worship Yahweh. They were just going to do it through the calf idols that he made. He didn't say, stop worshiping Yahweh. He just said, hey, I'm going to make these calf idols, and this is the God who rescued you and everything, so just worship him. And it was kind of implied that that's still Yahweh. You're still doing things the right way. Okay, that was pretty sneaky and slippery already. But now Ahab is basically saying, away with Yahweh. We don't need him. We're going to focus on Baal. We're going to pull this other god of the Sidonians and of all the uh, pagans at that point up north there. We're just going to take that god down here, and we're going to make him the main focus. And, of course, that's where Jezebel was from. She was from that area. So she was a big part of instituting this right next to her husband, Ahab. And it says it was a trivial thing for him to walk in, in Jerry's sins. It's almost like you haven't seen anything yet. Let me introduce you to Baal. Wow, getting rough here. Verse 32, then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Remember, Samaria is the new capital now of the northern kingdom. So he builds a temple there, and he, put, he builds an altar just for this new god that they're going to be taking on. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did, did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's quite a statement. So this wooden image that it just kind of mentions in passing here, this was a sexual image. It was pretty common with the pagans back then. Uh, and it's an interesting that as the pagan worship raises higher, a lot of sexuality is included in that. I mean, you look at our nation right now. If you were judging it just on a scale of, how far do you think we've gone into the pagan realm just by looking at sexuality? Wow. To us, it's like it's off the scale, right? Yeah, so it, it lets us know where we're at on the scale of things, and it's not good. So in their culture, there was a lot of lewdness and promiscuity that was involved in the actual worship of Baal. So it had a strong appeal to the flesh, you know? We see how sex and violence have drawn so many in our culture in our society and drawn them in to that sin too. Somebody said, you take a whole generation that have been fed sex and violence from Hollywood movies all the way to video games, so it becomes second nature. And if the monsters within man ever become unleashed, then look out. And man, do you notice as they're raising up all of these things that violence is on the rise as well. Yeah, these things are connected. I mean, we would think that they are. We're talking about the, the Hollywood tries to tie sexuality into love, and the way the world has it, it's nothing like love. It has nothing to do with that, the way God designed love to be, right? 
But as those things are tied together, the very picture of them that, that kind of hit the peak was Sodom and Gomorrah. You can see the sexuality there. Look at the violence that they had to deal with at the end. Right? I mean, they were just wicked, wicked people, extremely violent. And that's where that leads to. Yeah, so if you think our country is going to become more wishy-washy as they open up further and further to homosexuality and everything, it's not. It's going to get more and more violent and dangerous. It's really sad. Now, when we talk about stuff like this, I think that what the people are going to see during the tribulation is going to be kind of the ultimate picture of this. Take a look at Revelation chapter 9 for a minute. And this is during the time of the tribulation that's coming. Praise the Lord. If, if you're in Christ, you're not going to have to witness this up close and in your face. But for those who reject Christ uh, and have to live through this time, wow, it's going to be rough. Revelation 9, look down to verse 20. It says, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues that had already been started there, they did not repent of the works of their hands. And notice what they're doing that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent. And notice what they did not repent of. Their murders are their sorceries, are their sexual immorality, are their thefts. Man, don't you want to live in a place like that that's just filled with that stuff? I mean, immorality has been thrown away because the Lord has taken the church out of here and the world is left to do whatever evil you want to do. And this is what they're into, and they don't want to repent of that. They don't want to stop doing any of that stuff. Wow, a scary, scary picture. So we see kind of the testing ground back here in the Old Testament as the devil's pulling strings that he can and getting things going as he can, and you can see it's a pretty ugly place. So back in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 34, in his days, now this is during the time of Ahab, Lord tells us an interesting story of what took place here. Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. Remember Jericho, place that was torn down there when Israel came in the land, the Lord just leveled the place. So this guy decided to rebuild it. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates. So he lost two of his sons. They put, two of them died in this. Some, some speculate that maybe he actually killed his one son and buried, it in the, buried him in the foundation just as a tribute to his God or some crazy thing, which during that time I wouldn't be too surprised. But this place and this guy losing two of his sons, costing him two sons to build this, it says, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Now let me read that to you in Joshua 26. Uh, this is it's just a short statement here. But here's what the Lord had said. Um, well, I got, oh, I'm sorry, Joshua 6. I was going to say, there is no 26. How did I get there? Uh, Joshua 6 and verse 26. Then Joshua charged him at that time, saying, Cursed to be the man before the Lord, who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord did exactly what he said he was going to do, and he kept his word. And there was this curse laid on anybody who would try to rebuild the city that the Lord destroyed. 
Now, look at this picture again. Here we are with looking at the kings of the Old Testament, doing their nasty, evil, wicked, selfish stuff, and the Lord's fulfilling his word right in front of them. You would think they would go back and say, wait a minute, God said this is going to happen, and it happened. So if God tells us, you keep going the direction you're going, I'm going to wipe you out, he means that. He's not kidding. It's not a joke. You can't say, that'll never happen to us. Because God always keeps his word. And he gives them evidence over and over again here that he does just that. Man, we can look at this and point at these people and say, what were you thinking? But we can also look at our world today. We've got this entire book in writing, right? We see this story. We see the many times even beyond this where the Lord did exactly what he said he was going to do. And again, it shows us the foolishness of man's heart. You would think, just logically thinking, you would go with this and say, wow, if God said, I'm going to judge you for this, there's a price to pay, we'd say, okay, I don't want to do that. But man ignores all of that and thinks somehow he's going to make it past it. So in the midst of this now, look at chapter 17, verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, this is the first time that we see the prophet Elijah. He just all of a sudden pops on the scene here. We're not given any background. We're not told anything about his preparation or what the Lord did with him. All of a sudden, here he is standing here before this very wicked king Ahab, and he's delivering a message from the Lord. Whew, right off the bat, we know this is one tough guy. I mean, one guy that has great boldness for the Lord. Okay? And his name actually means Yahweh is God. <laughs> what an awesome name for a prophet. <laughs> Can you imagine? Hey, buddy, what's your name? Yahweh is God. Whoa. You think you would fall back and say, wow. Yeah. So, And this man, he's going to become a very powerful instrument for the Lord. Just one guy here, okay? So we get a good lesson from this. As we see this prophet who's willing to stand alone for the Lord here, you know. And the lesson is don't ever underestimate what the Lord can do with a person's life when that person totally surrenders to God's will. And that includes you, Okay. Don't think the Lord can't use your life for a very special purpose if you're willing to totally surrender to his will for you. And that's actually what happens when a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. See, in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you have to totally surrender to the Lord. I mean, you can ask the Lord to fill you with his spirit, but that's not going to happen until you say, Lord, I give up. I surrender my life totally to you. Take my life and use it however you want to use it. One person, he went so far as to say, Lord, you can fill my body with cancer, or you can send me as a missionary to the other side of the earth. However you want to use my life, do it as you will. That person who said that to the Lord actually became quite a powerful evangelist. And the Lord put him in the position of being a president of a Bible college in the Kansas City area. He lived a generation behind us, and he's since gone home to be with the Lord 
but he left quite a legacy of leading people to Christ. So don't ever estimate what the Lord can do with a person who's willing to totally give God control of their life. It's amazing. Now I see here again in our story, you know, with Elijah, that the Lord is sending a prophet to try and wake up the king Ahab as well as the people of Israel who were, who were living in the northern kingdom at that time. And even though they were into such deep darkness of sin and rebellion against God, the Lord still cared for them. And he wanted them to repent and come back to him. I mean, it's amazing to me that God would even take time to send a prophet to people that are just driving off the cliff of sin here. And yet he does because he cares. You know, God loves people so, so much. I really like what somebody said uh, this week. They got a principle from this verse that we're looking at here. And they said, as the devil is preparing his Ahabs to flaunt and promote evil in this world, the Lord is preparing his Elijahs and his prophets and messengers to go reach people to call them back to the Lord. So think about this. What does the world need when it's in a time where evil is spread all over the place? And it's getting darker every day. What does that kind of a world need? They need the prophets of the Lord. All those that he has gifted with that ability, they need to stand up and they need to speak out. Yeah, so if you've had that burden and you said, man, I just don't want to make waves, the Lord's telling you, you need to make some waves. You need to speak the truth powerfully in love. God loves people. And even today, he's sending his prophets and evangelists into dark regions of this earth in an effort to wake people up before it's too late. You know, as long as people still have breath in them, they have an opportunity to come to Christ. But the day will come when they've been given their last opportunity. I know as Rich prayed this morning, he prays, Lord, please give our loved ones another opportunity. And we pray that every week, another opportunity. But you know, there's going to come a day where it will be the last opportunity. And then it's going to be too late. I heard somebody say this week, and it was a sobering reminder, but they just bluntly said, there are thousands of people dying and going to hell every day, and we need to wake up and get busy doing the Lord's work. We need to start with prayer, and we need to be praying that the lost people will come to Christ. We need to pray that every day. And if you think about it for many Today will be their last opportunity to receive Christ. It is forgiveness, the last opportunity this very day. We don't like to think that bluntly, but sometimes I think we need that wake-up call. I'm sorry, folks. These people, they're going to enter into eternity. And if they have not received the forgiveness of Christ, they're going to have to pay the eternal price for their sins, and eternity in the lake burning with fire, with no reprieve ever. We, can, we cannot even imagine what that would be like because our minds don't even go there. Our minds are finite. They don't even travel that far to, to think what that would be like. 
Notice here the very first thing that Elijah says to him. He says, the Lord God of Israel lives. If you notice the word as here in the New King James is in the italics. I think in King James it is as well. And that means that word was supplied by the translators to try to help understanding the passage here. But in this case, uh, it's not needed. Uh, his statement is actually a proclamation that the Lord God of Israel is alive. And this is a good message in itself, not only for Ahab and for Israel back then, but it's a message that we need to remind the world of, even in our time period. Because there are a lot of people, and I know you've met them, who are living as though they don't think that God is alive, and they don't think they're going to have to answer to him someday. So you and I can carry this message with us too, that our God is alive. Also, Elijah says here, if you notice, he says, I stand before the Lord as he's given this message. And these words that he's speaking are the words of a servant who constantly stands before his master. So Elijah's point was that I'm delivering this message from my master to you. He instructed me to deliver it to you, Ahab, and to the people of Israel. That's pretty awesome. You think about that. And you and I can say the same thing to people, too, when we talk with them, because our master gave us this message to deliver to them, right? We have that authority to be able to say that to them. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. If you notice what he said, uh, he said, the, God, the, God of, the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. There shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. So a couple of things going on here as it talks about a lack of dew and rain. For one, the Lord had warned Israel that once they got in the promised land, if they disobeyed him, then God was going to hold back the rain. If you want to see that in Leviticus 26, and uh, this is an amazing passage. Uh, we went through this some time back, uh, Leviticus 26. And uh, man, when the Lord says things this clear, you think you sure ought to pay attention. But Leviticus 26, look at the blessing side of it first in verse 3. The Lord said, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, this is when they go in the promised land, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You will eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. So the Lord was saying, I'm going to bless you so much that you're going to be picking up next year's fruit. You're going to be taking it in from the field, and you still got a whole bunch of fruit from last year. You got a lot of food from there still. So the Lord was saying, that's what kind of abundance they were going to have. But on the other side of that, look at verse 18. In the same passage, Leviticus 26. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron. That means no water. And your earth like bronze. And again, hard, no water. Your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the fields of the land yield their fruit completely cut off food source. That's what the Lord says. I hold back the rain, guess what? No food. 
You don't need supermarkets anymore because there's nothing to sell. Okay? So we see the promise of God to bless obedience and the promise of God to curse disobedience. Very clear. How could you not understand as clearly as the Lord wrote that? So this should be a real scary people, a scary thing for the people that were living during the time of Ahab. You know, because without rain, that means there's going to be a famine, there's going to be no food. And they completely relied on those things for their crops, and not only their own survival, but the survival of their animals, their livestock, everything, okay? The amazing thing is that it didn't have to be that way. They just had to repent and obey the Lord and see amazing blessing from God, but they weren't going to do that. The foolishness of man in turning away from God can cause him to have a very, very hard life. It's crazy. People will blame the Lord even when they get to that point. It's like, it's not God's fault. You made those decisions. You made those choices. Now, back in our, our first King passage, again, there's another thing going on here when it says that rain was been withheld. Uh, this was more than just a judgment to get their attention because it was also a judgment against the false god of Baal that Israel was worshiping. See, Baal was considered by the Canaanites to be the, the storm god, the one that controlled the weather. So the Lord was going to show how powerless this fake god Baal was to do anything to stop the true and living God of Israel. And you know, if you go and you're going to get this fight set up where this all-powerful God's going to fight this fake God, who would you put your money on? <laughs> I mean, it'd be foolish to say, I'm going to stick with the loser, man. I'm going to be on that side. So God does this to show them, you know, it's just amazing. So this holy, this, if you notice this too, he said here, there's not going to be dew even or rain these years. That's plural, okay? And remember, for a society that relies on the rain to survive, here's the question. Are you going to trust Baal? Are you going to trust God of Israel? And they obviously made the wrong choice. But this is a good question to ask ourselves. When it seems like we're going through a dry spell in our life, who are we going to turn to? You got to turn to the world? <laughs> Hopefully our answer is we're going to turn to the Lord God of Israel because he's our God too. Okay. In verse, chapter 17 of 1 Kings, verse 2 says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, So now Elijah has delivered the message. Now another word comes to him from the Lord, verse 3. And the Lord says, Get away from here and turn eastward, tells him what direction to go, and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. Now somebody pointed out here that the Lord did not tell Elijah here to go and hide until Elijah had already delivered the first message from the Lord. The Lord obviously knew ahead of time that Elijah was going to have to flee after he gave this message to Ahab. But the Lord didn't tell him until now. Okay, The Lord's not obligated to tell us everything we need to know up front. He's really not. <laughs> we just need to follow the guidance the Lord gives us at the time and then be willing to do the next step when he reveals it to us. All right? I had to laugh. Somebody had this on Facebook this week. Lisa showed it to me, and the guy got some flack over this, which you can imagine after you hear it. He said, you know, I hear people ask, what would Jesus do? He said, do you know that the Lord has the ability to wipe everybody out on earth, save just a handful of people in a boat, and rescue them? 
He said, that's one of the cards on the table when you ask, what would Jesus do? <laughs> and people, he got some flack because they're like, wait a minute, we want to talk about the good stuff, you know? <laughs> but that is one of the cards on the table. Dare we think that we have a right to put, a, put some pressure on God to tell us what we need to know? Woo, you better back up a little bit here, okay? So Elijah is a great example of somebody who consistently obeyed the Lord in that next step once the Lord revealed it. Man, I love to see that with this guy. The Lord didn't tell him that. The Lord just said, I want you to go speak to this king. I don't know what was running through Elijah's mind, but I'm thinking he might have thought, okay, I'm going to barely get these words out, and then a spear is going to go through me, you know. But the Lord tells him, okay, now it's time to run. I had you deliver this really rough mail message, but now you need to go. And he tells him exactly where to go and exactly where he's supposed to be. You think about this, so this is one of the ways the Lord helps our faith grow. As we continue to trust in him, our faith gets stronger, and a lot of times the Lord is using these next steps to train us and prepare us for some future job that he has. I don't know what the Lord is preparing you for or me for, but when the Lord takes us through these times where we may stop and question and say, Lord, why didn't you tell me that before? I mean, Elijah could have said, I could have had my horse, you know, fired up and running here or something or something, but you didn't give me any heads up. I don't know what ran through Elijah's mind other than, okay, Lord, I'm going, I'm, I'm heading out. I think he had amazing faith that he was just trusting God for whatever. You know, and whatever the Lord is preparing you and me for, when the, the future job happens, we're going to need all the training and the strengthening that the Lord has done for us. We're going to need all of it. So don't be discouraged if you're one of those steps that seem maybe to be a pretty small one right now, or even if you're one of those steps that seems to be a giant step right now. Just know that the Lord is training you for his purpose down the road. I mean, we know the end of the story. We know that Elijah's got some pretty rough spiritual battles coming up. He's going to need all the strength and the faith he can muster. So God's training in that. He's preparing him. He's, he's getting built up right now. Now, the place where the Lord tells Elijah to hide is kind of interesting here. He says, go by the brook Cherith. That's actually a place outside of the promised land. Okay, And it's interesting that the Lord would have to send his prophet to a place like that for his own safety. Like somebody said, can you imagine how messed up Israel was at this point? It was actually safer for a prophet to be outside of the promised land rather than living in the midst of God's people there. That's when you are really messed up. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, we're going to stop at this point. There's a lot of great lessons coming up in this chapter, but our time is gone here. Elijah is an amazing guy to look at. He's quite a picture of, of that person that submits to the Lord. And we're going to see Elijah has some ups and downs. He's human, just like you and I. We may have our good days when it comes to faith and stepping up and trusting the Lord, and then we might wake up one day and we've got fear and wondering, what am I doing? And it's okay. God has everything in control, whether we have the faith today or we don't. He's still on the throne. And as we sang this morning, our God does not change. Praise the Lord for that. Huh? All right, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Father, you are such an awesome God, and you're so amazing, and we cannot thank you enough for your goodness, your holiness. Thank you for your mercy, your kindness that you show us every day. And Lord, we, we praise you for the day that you brought the truth to us as you got it into our life to let us know 
that Jesus died for our sins and he paid for them completely on the cross. And Lord, we call out to you now as we've been praying for our loved ones, for those that we come across in this world. Lord, please let your light shine brightly through us. We pray that you give these people another chance to hear the gospel, another chance to come to Christ. Lord, I know you're making all the efforts here to get the truth to people. Lord, let us not be a hindrance, but let us be an open vessel for that. And we pray, Lord, uh, right now that your spirit would just work powerfully in us and through us. So fill us with your spirit. Help us to surrender completely and say, Lord, I give it all up for you. Use my life any way you want to use it. Do with me whatever you will. And we love you, Lord, and we want to follow you. And Father, we give you all the praise in Jesus' precious name. Amen.